I don't think I know any of you. I have been gone so long that the kids who are your age are probably your parents now. Anyway, does any of you know what a honeymoon is? Just, what's a honeymoon? Oh, he's got it. I thought someone was going to say it's a, it's a candy. No. <laughs> it's a vacation that a husband and wife take usually right after they get married. Do you know what kind of salad honeymooners like to eat? Lettuce alone. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to tell you about my wife and I on our honeymoon. We uh, were driving down the highway. We were in a part of the country. If you ever fly over eastern Nebraska, it's flat. And all the roads are laid out in perfect squares, one mile. And when you're going down the main highway, you will pass a farm road, a dirt road, every mile. You can check your speedometer to see if it's right. And we had passed 200 of these roads. It was 9 o'clock at night. We only had 10 miles to go to get where we were going. And uh, like I said, honeymooners want to be left alone. But as we passed one of these roads, a little voice in my head said, turn left at the next intersection. I thought, I don't want to go down there. That's not the direction we're going to go. And I went on by. And very insistent in my head, a voice said, I want you to turn left at that road back there. So I looked over at Alma and I said, did you hear anything? She says, no, why? I said, I've just had a very strong impression we should go down that road back there. And she's braver than I am because I'm afraid of people I don't know, especially at 9 o'clock at night. But she said, well, let's go see what's down there. So I didn't want her to know I was a coward, so I turned the car around, and we went down that road. And about a mile down that farm road, we came to this big, beautiful farm. And had it been a poor farm, I might not have been so nervous, but, you know, this is a very successful farmer. I had a lot of money. But, again, I didn't want my wife to know I was a coward, so I pulled in the driveway. We got out, and I had been selling Bible storybooks. Anybody have the Bible stories at your house? All right. Well, anyway, I'd been selling them, and I had my case with me. I thought, so I went up to the door, knocked the door, and a man came to the door, and in a gruff voice, he says, what do you want? And I said something about being Christians and stuff, and he said a bad word and told me to get off his farm. And I felt like a fool. And we turned around, and we started going down the steps. When we heard a teenage girl's voice say, Daddy, I'd like to hear what they have to say. And he said, well, I guess you can if you want to. So we followed her into the dining room and sat at the table, and he went back in the living room to watch TV. And I didn't try to sell her any books, but we talked about Jesus. And I asked her if she would like to get through the mail Bible lessons so she could study the Bible. She said, I'd like that. And I had a card in my case. I took it out, and she filled it up. And I said, I will mail it for you. And then I gave her the book Steps to Christ, which we're going to give to Caitlin today with her name on it. And then I asked her, would it be all right if I had prayer for her? She said, I'd like that. So we prayed for her, and then we headed toward the door. And as we were going toward the door, she said, it sure is funny that you came to our house tonight. I says, why do you say that? She says, I'm taking biology this summer in summer school. And just this afternoon, the biology teacher was saying that the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tales. There is no such thing as God. The idea of creation is just hocus-pocus. He said, revolution tells the truth about how we got here. And she said, uh, I didn't know if there's a God or not. She says, we don't go to church. And I could tell by the way her dad talked, they probably didn't. But she said, as he was saying, there is no God. She says, I looked up at the ceiling and I said, God, if you're really up there, send somebody to tell me about you before I go to bed tonight. And after a moment of of holy silence, I said, we're on our honeymoon. We didn't want to see anybody tonight. I said, the same God that you talked to in Bible in your biology class today was in my car and told me to turn and come down your road. I says, this is the first time we have left the main highway in 200 miles. And I thought, what a nice way to start a marriage. And what I have discovered, is there a Holy Spirit and how many in the Bible remember the story of Samuel? And in the middle of the night, Samuel heard a voice, Samuel, Samuel, and it was God talking to him. And what I found out that night, 
How many of you like to have your prayers answered? You ever prayed and had your air prayers? You know what's nicer than having your prayers answered? That's being used by God to answer somebody else's prayer. And that's what happened that night, and I have never forgotten that. And what I ask God is, says, God, help me to keep my brain in contact with you because it is so fun to answer somebody else's prayer and be God's answer. How many want to listen to God and not, not only have your prayers answered, but say, God, let me use me to answer somebody else's prayer. How many like to be used by God like that to answer somebody else's prayer? That's the funnest thing in the world. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Pastor, for that story. Um, it's been a while since I did a special music, but um, it's good to be here and do special music for Caitlin and for her baptism. And um, I haven't sung this song in a while either. This is a song that was originally done, or at least made famous, by Garth Brooks called The River. And it just talks about having dreams. I think all of us have had dreams in our life, and I'm sure, Caitlin, you have lots of dreams about what you want to happen in the future and where you want your life to go to. And... When we have dreams as young people, sometimes they evolve and change as we get older. And this song just talks a little bit about that. So as you start your journey, well, as you officially publicly recognize your journey with Christ, I'm sure you've been on this journey for a while, as you publicly recognize it today, just remember that as you go through your walk with him over the rest of your life, that um, he will lead you into some strange places maybe, or some different places than you thought you were going to go into but he is in control, and if you trust him and follow him, he will lead you through all your dreams. No, a dream is like a river, it's ever changing as it flows. And the dreamer's just a vessel that must follow where it goes. Trying to learn from what's behind you, never knowing what's in store, makes each day a constant battle just to stay between the shores. And I will sail my vessel. Till the river runs dry Like a bird upon the wind These waters are my sky I'll never reach my destination If I never try So I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Too many times we stand aside And let the water slip away Till what we put off till tomorrow Has now become today So don't you sit upon the shoreline And say you're satisfied Choose to chance the rapids And dare to dance the tides And I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Like a bird upon the wind These waters are my sky I'll never reach my destination If I never try So I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry There's bound to be rough waters And I know I'll take some falls With the good Lord as my captain I can make it through them all Yes, I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry And like a bird upon the wind 
These waters are my sky, I'll never reach my destination If I never try, so I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Yes, I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Until the river runs dry from Luke 10, 19 and 20. Behold, I give you the authority to trample out, trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of, your, of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Let's bow our heads for just a moment of silent prayer. Amen. Um, As you can see from the bulletin, we're going to have a baptism that will be after the sermon. But what I would like to do now, which I often do whenever I have a baptism... We go over the baptismal vows, and uh, I don't want to embarrass Caitlin, but I'd like to invite you to come up here, and all you have to do is answer yes or no, if that's how you, but uh, I understand that you have taken the lessons preparing you to understand what it means to be a Christian and a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and uh, I'm going to ask you the 13 questions that you'll see on the back of your baptismal certificate. Do you believe in God the Father, in his Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit? Yes. Amen. Do you accept the death of Jesus on Calvary as the atoning sacrifice for your sins? And do you believe that through faith in his shed blood that he has saved you from sin and its penalty? Yes. Renouncing the world and the sinful ways of the world, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? And do you believe that God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven your sins and given you a new heart? Do you accept by faith the righteousness of Christ as your own, recognizing him as your intercessor in the heavenly sanctuary, and you claim his promise to strengthen you by his indwelling spirit so that you may receive power to do his will? Do you believe that the Bible is God's inspired word and that it constitutes the only rule of faith and practice for the Christian? Do you accept the Ten Commandments as still binding upon Christian? And is it your purpose by the power of the indwelling Christ to keep his law, including the fourth commandment, which requires the observance of the seventh day of the week as the Sabbath of the Lord? Yes. Is the soon coming of Jesus the blessed hope in your heart? And are you determined to be personally ready to meet the Lord and to do all in your power to witness his loving salvation and by life and word help others be ready for his appearing? Yes. Amen. Do you accept the Bible teaching of spiritual gifts? And do you believe that the gift of prophecy in the remnant church is one of the identifying marks of that church? Yes. Do you believe that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are to honor God by caring for your body, avoiding the use of that which is harmful, abstaining from foods, foods that the Bible says are unclean, and from the use, manufacture, sale of alcoholic beverages, the use, manufacture, or sale of tobacco in any of its form for human consumption, and for the misuse or attractive of narcotics and drugs. Yes. Do you believe that God's remnant church, and is it your purpose to support the church by your tithes and offerings and your personal effort and influence? Yes. Amen. Knowing and understanding the fundamental Bible principles as taught by the Seventh Adventist Church, is it your purpose by the grace of God to live your life in harmony with those principles? Do you accept the New Testament teaching of baptism by immersion? And do you so desire to be baptized up a public expression of your faith in Christ and the forgiveness of your sins? 
Do you believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the remnant church of Bible prophecy in Revelation 12, 17, and that people of every nation and race and language are invited and accepted into its fellowship? Do you desire to be a member of this local congregation of the World Church? Yes. Amen. You've heard her answer to these questions. Is there a motion that Caitlin become a member of the Marshfield Seventh-day Adventist Church today, subject to her baptism? Is there a second? Did I hear a second? Okay, I'm partly deaf, so you've got to speak up. All those in favor, raise your hand. You are wanted. Thank you. We will come up here a little later for the baptism. Now, how many of you there have ever been in Caitlin's situation, asked those questions and said yes, as she did? How many here have been through that? Whenever I do the baptismal vows, I think of the children of Israel there at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God gave them the Ten Commandments. And I believe that they sincerely said, yes, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. But how many of you discovered that there is a devil, and when you take these vows, there's somebody out there, as soon as you take these vows, trying to get you to break them? Anybody ever noticed that? Well, you notice the uh, title of the sermon, Connect to God's Power. And that's what I want to talk about today, especially for Caitlin and any of the rest of you who have made a vow and struggled to keep it. I remember when I was in college, one Friday night we came into Vespers and we snickered a little bit because it looked like the janitor forgot to put the vacuum cleaner away because it was still sitting right on the pulpit up there. And... Uh, Nobody said anything, and nobody came and took it away, and we had the song service, and we wondered, what are they going to do with that vacuum cleaner? Finally, our Bible teacher got up to uh, teach, and he started talking about uh, the Christian life and how that sometimes it's hard, and he had brought us a little sack with him, and it was full of pencil shavings from the pencil sharpener and just trash, and... Uh, he took it and he dumped it on the pulpit. And we thought, well, that's a dumb thing to do. But he says, oh, I have made a terrible mess here. Well, they left the vacuum cleaner. I'll clean it up. And so he took the vacuum cleaner, and it was obvious that the cord was wrapped up on the handle like it was. And he started running that vacuum cleaner back and forth across the mess. And uh, he says, I'm not doing very good, am I? And he started doing harder. And all he was doing was grinding it in and spreading it around. And uh, so we said out there, we hollered, plug it in. He says, no, that's not the problem. I'm not trying hard enough. And so he tried harder. And the more he tried, the more frustrated he got. And we kept hollering, he was plug it in. So he finally took our advice and he plugged it in. Now, he didn't stop doing what he had been doing. But because he was connected to the source of power, he was able to clean up the mess that he had made. How many think that's a nice sermon? Well, it's not for me. <laughs> I want to show you. How to connect with God's power. And uh, you heard the scripture. I'm going to read it again. I am so old and so used to the King James. I don't hate the others, but uh, I'd like to read it what it says in the King James here. This is Luke chapter 10. And uh, the situation in the book of Luke in chapter 10 is that Jesus not only had his 12 disciples, but in this particular situation, there were 70 of them. And he gave them instructions. I'm going to be traveling through this area. He says, I want you to go ahead of me and get, get, you know, get the people ready. So they went out. And when they came back, they were all excited. Because in verse 17, it says, And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord... Even the devils are subject to us through your name. How would to be excited about that, starting pushing the devil around? I love it. Verse 18, and he said to them, I beheld a Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And this text, we usually use it in connection with the battle that went on when Lucifer rebelled against God and he got kicked out of heaven. But I want you to notice the context here of it. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. What the context is, is here is 70 common ordinary human beings who went out in Jesus name and they were pushing Satan around and that's kind of a fall of Satan too isn't it that's the context and then in verse 19 Jesus said behold I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions 
and over all the power of the enemy. How many like that? Now, I'm going to ask you a question. How many here would like to know how to make Satan leave you alone? I often hear people say that. Won't it be wonderful when Satan... How many like to know how to make Satan leave you alone? I'm going to tell you, whether you want to know or not, I know how to make Satan leave you alone. How many want me to tell you how to make him leave you alone? I'm going to tell you how. You just cooperate with him, and he won't bother you anymore. Because you look at, at, at Job. Remember, he had a lot of trouble. And if he had just done what Satan wanted him to do, he wouldn't have had all that trouble, would he? And I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, they had a lot of trouble because they didn't bow down to the image. And had they bowed down to the image, they would have had no more trouble. How many recognize that? And I think of Daniel and the lion's den. Had he just neglected praying to God, he wouldn't have had that trouble. He wouldn't have been thrown to the lion's den. So how many like the idea of how to not be bothered by Satan? Because let's face it. If you have made up your mind to do what God wants you to do, he puts a target on you. And as you read through the Bible, you discover person after person after person who dedicated themselves to God. And it says in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 that the dragon, that's Satan, was wroth with the woman, that's the church, and went to make war with who? The last ones at the end of time. Do you remember that text that tells why he was making war with them? They're keeping the commandments of God. So if you want to make Satan leave you alone, don't try to keep God's commandments. He probably won't bother you. But if you make up your mind, you want to be one of God's people and you want to do God's will, don't think he's going to leave you alone. In fact, I have finally come to the conclusion that being tempted and overcome is better than not being tempted at all. Does that make sense? In fact, there's a strange text in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It's very strange. It says, count it all joy. How many read that text? Count what all joy? When you win the lottery, count it all joy when what happens? You fall into difficulties and trials and temptations. Because going through the trials and the temptations, in fact, there's a statement in the book called Ministry of Healing that says, Trials and tribulations are God's appointed means to perfect our character. And I think of another text in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says, You will not be tempted above what you are able, but God will supply the strength to overcome. So, let's go back to Luke chapter 10 and verse 19 again. It says, Behold, I give unto you power. How many want that power? He explains here how to get it. Let me explain a little more. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. Who's the serpent? That old serpent, the devil and Satan. Who are the scorpions? Who do you think the scorpions are? It's his evil angels, right? And notice this, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. Now, there are some people in some churches who want to take that literally and let snakes bite them and scorpions sting them, and they have big problems. But this is talking about God's children's battle with Satan. And it says here, tread on serpents and scorpions. And this is a military term because back in those days when they did their battles, it was hand-to-hand combat. And when the battle was over, the loser was on the ground and the winners were standing on their neck. And what this is saying is, I'm going to give you power and Satan's going to make war against you. And when the war is over, he's going to be on the ground and you're going to stand on his head. Uh, go to, to Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. And in Romans 16 and 20, it, it says this, God will crush Satan shortly under your feet. And we know back in Genesis 3.15, the promise gave to Eve that the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head and he will have his heel bruised. And so it looks like what's happening here is that God is kicking Satan in the head. And when you get to Revelation 12.17, it looks like, and particularly Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, God is going to crush Satan where? Under your feet. So it looks like God kicks Satan in the head. Now, if God is going to kick Satan in the head, how many like to volunteer and say, Lord, let me be your foot? I know I might stub my toe, but how many think it would be a wonderful experience to be used by God to kick Satan in the head? 
How many would like to be? And I'm convinced that is the purpose for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to prepare people to get so close to God that he, he can use them to go into battle with Satan. And when the battle is over, God has proven to be right and Satan has proven to be wrong. Amen? So this is an exciting text to me. I'm going to read verse 19 again. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now the hurt that it's talking about here is not physical hurt. Because John the Baptist had his head cut off and Jesus was crucified. And uh, Stephen was stoned. And James had his head cut off. So it's obviously not talking about physical hurt. In fact, Jesus said the last thing he said before he prayed in uh, John 16. In the world you will have tribulation. How many have read that text? Does anybody know what the very next words came out of Jesus' mouth? But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so the hurt that it's talking about is not physical hurt. It's the hurt that we do to ourselves when we follow Satan's temptations. And the world is filled with miserable people who uh, have followed Satan's way and uh, wind up committing suicide. In fact, I heard on the radio the other day that for between 15 and 25, the highest thing that causes death of that age group is suicide. They're looking for joy. They can only find it in Jesus. They haven't found it. And so they just want to go to sleep and die. Now, how many would like to know how to take hold of God's power? Because that's the very next verse, verse 20. It says this, Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you. Now, I just mentioned, and you agreed with me, overcoming Satan. That's an exciting prospect, right? But notice what Jesus says here. Do not rejoice when you get victory over Satan. How many are a little bit surprised that Jesus would say that? You know, you make a New Year's resolution and you keep it. And you're kind of, you know, and you you try to do right and you do right and you feel good about it and you rejoice about it. But notice what Jesus says here. Notwithstanding this, don't rejoice when you get victory over Satan. And I think the reason Jesus said that is because one of the sneakiest temptations of all of Satan is to tempt us with a temptation that he knows we can resist him and we don't do it. And then we get kind of proud of ourselves. Then we get a little bit boastful. Then we start criticizing people who didn't get victory like we did. And then you have trouble in the church. So Jesus said, don't rejoice that you get victory over Satan. What does it say? Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, what does it mean to have your name written in heaven? Well, go to Daniel chapter 12. And Daniel chapter 12, it goes along with about the battle because it says in verse 1, in that, that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince, and there shall be a time of trouble such as there never was. How many have heard about the time of trouble coming? How many can see the first remblings of it already? Now, the next thing it says in that verse, and they shall be delivered whose names are written in the book. So when you are rejoicing that your name is in the book, what it means, you're rejoicing that when Jesus comes, you're going to be one of the people that goes to heaven with him. Now, how many recognize here that Jesus is telling the disciples something to do? How many recognize that? And doing it would connect them with the power. And it looks like at least for a while they didn't do it. In fact, I believe had they been doing what Jesus told them to do, when it came down to the to trial and everything, they wouldn't have all forsaken him and fled. Peter wouldn't have uh, cursed and sworn and denied they knew him. And had Judas been rejoicing that his name in the book, I don't think he would have betrayed Jesus. And you see, we don't do it because we don't think we qualify. We think, well, you can't start rejoicing that you're going to be one of the people that go to heaven until you have overcome more stuff than what you've overcome already. But here's Jesus telling us to the disciples. And at this time of the disciples, there was still conflict. How many know there was conflict among the disciples? And I hear people say, we need to get back to primitive Christianity. And I says, we need to do better than that. Because here's primitive Christians, the disciples, 
And as they would be traveling, they'd get bickering with each other, who's going to be the highest in the kingdom? In fact, just before the Last Supper, the mother of James and John came on the slide to the side and says, when you set up your kingdom, because my sons have the highest position. How many like that? How many don't like that? Well, the other ten disciples heard about it, and they were indignant. And they came to the Last Supper, and they were kind of bickering with each other. And uh, Peter... The one who said, I'll never forsake you. He was kind of proud of his willpower. And maybe the rest will leave. I will never leave. And Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he did that, cursing and swearing. And here in Luke 10, before any of these things happened, while they still had these sins in their life, Jesus is telling them to start rejoicing that their name is in the book. And you see, the reason we don't do that is because we think we have to overcome before we can rejoice that our name is the book. But what I understand from this and other places in the Bible, it's rejoicing that your name is in the book that helps you resist temptation. How many recognize that temptation starts with a thought? How many recognize that? And I was telling the young adult class back here, I won't take the time to do that, But how many of you know that Satan has the capacity to put thoughts in your heads and you're not even aware that they're coming from any place other than your own mind? Am I right? How many recognize that? That's what temptation is. And so the way that you fight temptation is rather than saying, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'll do it. Because when you're saying you're not going to do it, you're already thinking about it. And like I've already said, if you resist temptation that way, either you won't do it and you'll become proud of yourself or you will do it and you'll get discouraged. And whichever way you resist temptation, if you do it that way, it's still a bummer. It's not what Jesus said to do. Uh, If you have your Bibles open, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to read, uh, starting verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And warring after the flesh is relying on our own willpower to resist Satan. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the bringing down of strongholds. Verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And we think, boy, it's hard enough to control my uh, behavior. You want me to control my thoughts? How many think Jesus is saying yes? And how do you do that? Because you you don't control your thoughts by saying, I'm not going to think about it. Because in the process of saying, I'm not going to think about it, you're already thinking about it. So what do you do when Satan starts putting his thoughts in your head? According to what Jesus said to the disciples, when they were still weak men fighting with each other, he said, don't rejoice when you get victory over Satan. Start rejoicing that your name is written in the book. Now, we use the term righteousness by faith, and righteousness is right doing, isn't it? How do you get the strength to do right? How many recognize this is what I'm talking about? Well, by faith. And we think, well, what is faith? I'm going to give you my favorite definition of faith, and you should write this down. It's from the book Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 391 and 392. And I'm not going to quote the whole thing. But here's what it says. This is a definition of faith. Here it is. If you believe that God is going to save other people, but you don't believe he's going to save you, you do not have genuine faith. So what's a genuine faith? You look at Jesus on the cross, and you recognize that God placed on Jesus the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53. All we leak sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you recognize everything I was done wrong has been punished in Jesus. And you accept him as your Savior, and according to steps to Christ, you stand before God as though you had never sinned. Is that something to rejoice about? And I'm convinced that this is how to keep your thoughts on God. When Satan starts tempting you, you do what Jesus told the disciples do. Rejoice. Your name is in the book. Now, let me ask another question. How did the disciples get their name written in the book? Since they were a bunch of characters anyway, how'd they get their name there? Well, according to the book Desire of Ages, page 331, the title of that chapter is The Invitation. And the first two paragraphs underneath that says this. When you accept Jesus' invitation, come follow me. 
you begin the life eternal. So when could the disciples start rejoicing that their name was in the book? Not when they got victory over their sins, but when Jesus invited them to follow him. Like Jesus has invited Caitlin to follow me, and Caitlin today is saying, I'm going to follow you. And when you make the decision to follow Jesus, you begin the life eternal. Now, a text that I struggled with for many years, even as a pastor, was 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. It says, I've written these things to you who believe on his name so that you can know that you have everlasting life. And I thought, well, you can't know that you have eternal life until you're pretty good. But I have discovered that that is not right because there are three places in the Bible that talk about people who thought they were pretty good and they're all lost. You find one in Matthew chapter 7. You know the verses there between 22 and 25. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, haven't I cast out demons in your name and prophesied in your name and done many wonderful works? And so he's, that person is looking at himself and he's thinking, yeah, I think I, sh- I should go to heaven. And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquities. I never knew you. So your hope of eternal life cannot base, be based on your opinion of your own goodness. And you go to Luke chapter 18, and Luke chapter 18 is the story you've heard of called the publican and the Pharisee. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and the one man went to the temple to pray, and he thought that he was pretty good because he said he listed all the things that he wasn't doing, and he listed the thing that he was doing, and Jesus says that man did not receive a blessing. The publican came to church filled with his need, and the only thing that he could think of to say is, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that man went home on his way justified. Now, those of you who were members of the church when I was here, how many of you remember what my favorite definition of justified is? It's found in Steps to Christ. Bobby Sue, can you say it from memory? Oh, well, I won't make you. I'll do it because I've got the microphone. In Steps to Christ, it says, when you accept Jesus as your Savior then no matter how sinful your past life may be in, for Christ's sake, you are accounted righteous because Christ's character stands in place of your character and God accepts you as though you had never sinned. How many recognize that's a, that's a beautiful thing to recognize? I'm standing before God as though I had never sinned. And Caitlin, you're going to get a book, Steps to Christ. And I did something I hope you don't mind. They gave me the book to sign it and I went to the page, I think it's 64, and I underlined that quote in your book. So you look in the fly leaf and he'll tell you where to go because I can't think of anything that is, brings more strength because the, how many know the Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength? How many know that song? Even know the song? Sing it. The joy of the Lord is my strength. 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 And the Bible talks about salvation giving you joy. And you know what the word rejoice comes from, don't you? It means you had joy, you're doing it again and again. That's what Jesus says here. The way you get the strength is you start rejoicing. My name is in the book. I don't deserve to have it there. But I accepted Jesus and he wrote my name in his book. Now, there's another scripture that you're used to singing, Philippians 4.4. How many already know what the scripture is, Philippians 4.4? Rejoice in, sing it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, again I say rejoice. Now, how many of you sang that with me? I already know it. That's a good text, isn't it? But too often when we rejoice, we are rejoicing about chicken feed. You know, went to the doctor, he says you have cancer, but they get it cured. And we rejoice. Now, pardon me, but that's chicken feed. You're having trouble with your finances and you pray about it and God shows you what to do. And you're out of your financial problem, you rejoice. Pardon me, that's chicken feed. I think we should thank God for these things. But you see, too often what we do, we are rejoicing over the things that have to do with life on planet Earth. When what we need to be rejoicing about is what Jesus has done for us. Because when you read that text, Philippians 4.4, 4, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know what it's telling you to rejoice about? You back up to verse 3. You should write this down because we sing verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. But we're rejoicing about chicken feed. You go back to verse 3 of Philippians 4. And the last words of Philippians 3 said, whose names are in the book of life. So let's sing that song again. And we'll sing rejoice in the Lord always. My name is in his book. Rejoice in the Lord always. My name is in his book. Rejoice in the Lord always. My name is in his book. Rejoice, rejoice. My name is in his book. Rejoice, rejoice. My name is in his book. Now how many are just a little bit uncomfortable saying that? Because you look at yourself and think, I'm not good enough. But if rejoicing that your name is in God's book is where you get the power to overcome Satan, Satan doesn't want you to have that power. And I've read where Ellen White says that those who are sincere and really want to live for God, he gets them to dwell upon their own mistakes, their own faults, their own weaknesses, and thus he separates them from Christ and hopes to gain the victory. Also in Steps to Christ, I love one that says, we should not make self the center and indulge in anxiety and fears whether or not we should be saved. And for years I looked at that and I thought, well, it's anxiety and fear that keeps me on the straight and narrow path because I'm afraid of what will happen if I fall off the path. But according to Ellen White, she says we should not make self the center. This is if you've accepted Jesus. If you haven't accepted Jesus, if you haven't been born again, you have every reason in the world to be afraid. I don't want to take away healthy fear. But I'm talking about people who have accepted Jesus, who have taken the baptismal vows, who've heard the Ten Commandments, and they says, I want to do that, and they discover that they're weak. Those are the people this sermon's for, people who want strength. Rejoice in the Lord, because my name is in the book. And back to that quote that says, if you believe that God is going to save other people, but you don't believe he's going to save you, you don't have genuine faith. And you put that with Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And pleasing him is just not saying, oh, yeah, I believe he's there. Pleasing him is you're doing his will. And the way you get your strength is you're rejoicing. My name is in the book. Now, take your bulletin. Take your bulletin. And uh, in the middle of the second page where it says church announcements... Right in the middle of the page, it says, thought through Christ, Christ object lessons. Uh, I want to read that to you, and now you can follow along. The Lord desires us. What desires mean? He wants us to do it. He desires us to appreciate the great plan of salvation, to realize our privilege as children of God, and to walk before him in obedience. What kind of obedience? Grateful thanksgiving. He desires us to serve him in newness of life with gladness every day. Now notice the next sentence. He longs to see gratitude welling up in our hearts because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How many like that? You know what longing means? You don't have something and you want it and yet that's all you can think about it. God has a longing. He longs to see gratitude welling up in our hearts because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I have discovered that gratitude is the attitude that gives you victory. You don't want to let him down. Let me read on. In the Lamb's book of life, because we may cast all our care upon him who cares for us, he bids us rejoice because we are the heritage of the Lord. We're his children. We're going to get inherit everything he has. Because the righteousness of Christ is the white robe of his saints. Because we have the blessed hope of the soon coming of our Savior. Now you can see that's from... Uh, Mount, uh, thoughts, Christ Object Lessons, 299-300. As that paragraph goes on, in fact, I have the whole, whole page written here. It, I love this. I'll read not just, just a little of it here. These exercises. What exercises? Thanking God. Your name is in the book. Thanking God that his character, that Jesus' character stands in place of your character. Thanking God that when he comes unworthy as I am, I'm going to be one of the people that go with him. Believing that, rejoicing that, these exercises 
Drive back the power of Satan. How many like that? These exercises, rejoicing, drives him away. These exercises drive back the power of Satan. They expel the spirit of murmuring and complaint, and the tempter loses ground. How many like that phrase? The tempter loses ground. How does he lose ground? When you do as Jesus told the disciples to do here, rejoice. Not that you get victory over Satan. Rejoice that your name is written in the book. Dear people, Caitlin, this is the only way I know to get victory over Satan. As soon as he puts his thoughts in your mind, you start saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. My name is in his book. And your heart will be filled with gratitude when you really believe that. How many believe that Jesus is coming soon? How many believe that when he gets here, he's going to take a whole bunch of people with him? How many believe that when he comes and takes that bunch of people, that you personally are going to be one of the ones that go? You start believing that. And if you don't believe what I'm saying today, you try it. Next time Satan, you know, something happens, you start getting mad at somebody or whatever goes on, start rejoicing. My name's in the book. And Daniel says the ones whose names are in the book are going to be delivered when Jesus comes. My name is in the book. If you don't believe this sermon, you try it. And then let me know. It's a good thing to do to resist temptation is replace Satan's thoughts with the mercy and the love of God. Amen? Amen. Now, at this time, Caitlin and I are going to go in our prospective rooms. We're going to prepare for the baptism. And somebody's going to come up here and lead you in a few songs while we are getting ready. I invite you, Caitlin, and whoever the deaconess is going to help her, you go there. Let's turn to number 508. 508. Number 318.
Caitlin, that you asked me to come and be the one who baptizes you. Uh, your father knows me, your mother knows me, your grandma, knows, a lot of people know me. You don't know me very well, but you must have taken their word for it, and you have given me what I consider a very, very great privilege. In fact, for a pastor, for baptism, is like you're playing baseball and you get a bases loaded home run. Or if you're playing football and you get a touchdown. Well, I'm excited today to be here with you in this baptistry and have the privilege of acting in Jesus' stead to baptize you. And the reason we baptize the way it shows here in the picture is because God wants you to know that he accepts you as though you had never sinned. That's what baptism represents. How many know that? God accepts you today, Caitlin, as though you had never sinned. And as you rejoice in that, it'll bring you to the place where you'll have victory over Satan. So now, Caitlin, because you have chosen to follow Jesus and because you want to be his child and walk with him into heaven, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's just sing another song together, song number 249. Song number 99. 
It's a wonderful thought, a wonderful song. We have for you a baptismal certificate that on the back is a place for you to sign, and then it's yours. And uh, this little book will, if you are looking for scriptures, you want to explain to someone why you believe what you believe, you can find it all right there. And this is the book Steps to Christ that is so precious to me and it tells you I've written in go to page 62 and I've already quoted 62 I just want to show you what I did to your book because that's the place that says when you accept Jesus as your savior then Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted Caitlin as though you had never sinned by God himself so step over here with me and let's have a word of prayer Dear Jesus, so much I thank you today that you died in our place, that you give us credit for your life, and you took the punishment for ours. And I claim that promise for Caitlin. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you, you said. And most of all, I claim for Caitlin and each of us the promise you gave to the thief, because all the thief said is, I'm getting what I deserve. And he recognized that the man dying in the middle was God. And he said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He was unworthy and he knew it. But he asked for mercy. And Jesus, you said to that man, you will be with me in paradise. Help Caitlin and each of us to carry this thought around in our mind. Because the joy of the Lord is where we get our strength. This is my prayer for her and all of us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.